Chapter Two of Ruggles of Red Gap by Harry Leon Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In that first sleep, how often do we dream that our calamity has been only a dream? It was so in my first moments of awakening. Vestiges of some grotesquely hideous nightmare remained with me. Wearing the shackles of the slave, I had been mowing the corn under the fierce sun that beats down upon the American savannas. Sickeningly, then, a wind of memory blew upon me, and I was alive to my situation. Nor was I forgetful of the plight in which the Honorable George would now find himself. He is as good as lost when not properly looked after. In the ordinary affairs of life, he is a simple, trusting, incompetent duffer, if ever there was one. Even in so rudimentary a matter as collar studs, he is like a storm-tossed mariner, I mean to say, like a chap in a boat on the ocean who doesn't know what sails to pull up nor how to steer the silly rudder one rather feels exactly like that about him and now he was bound to go seedy beyond description like the time at menton when he dreamed a system for playing the little horses after which for a fortnight i was obliged to nurse a well-connected invalid in order that we might last over till the next remittance day the havoc he managed to wreak among his belongings in that time would scarce be believed should i set it down not even a single boot properly treed and his appearance when i was enabled to recover him my client having behaved most handsomely on the eve of his departure for spain being such that i passed him in the hotel lounge without even a nod climbing boots with trousers from his one suit of boating flannels a blazered golfing waistcoat his best morning coat with a wide braid a hunting stock and a motoring cap with his beard more than discursive as one might say than i had ever seen it if i disclose this thing it is only that my fears for him may be comprehended when i pictured him being permanently out of hand meditating thus bitterly i had but finished dressing when i was startled by a knock on my door and by the entrance to my summons of the elder and more subdued flaud he of the drooping moustaches and the mournful eyes of pale blue one glance at his attire brought freshly to my mind the atrocious difficulties of my new situation i may be credited or not but combined with tan boots and wretchedly fitting trousers of a purple hue he wore a black frock coat revealing far far too much of a blue satin made cravat on which was painted a cluster of tiny white flowers lilies of the valley i should say unbelievably above this monstrous melange was a rather low-crowned bowler hat hardly repressing a shudder i bowed 
whereupon he advanced solemnly to me and put out his hand to cover the embarrassing situation tactfully i extended my own and we actually shook hands although the clasp was limply quite formal how do you do mr ruggles he began i bowed again but a speech failed me she sent me over to get you he went on he uttered the word she with such profound awe that i knew he could mean none other than mrs effie it was most extraordinary but i dare say only what was to have been expected from persons of this sort in any good class club or among gentlemen at large it is customary to allow one at least twenty-four hours for the payment of one's gambling debts yet there i was being collected by the winner at so early an hour as half after seven if i had been a five-pound note instead of myself i fancy it would have been quite the same these americans would most indecently have sent for their winnings before the honourable george had awakened one would have thought they had expected him to refuse payment of me after losing me the night before how little they seemed to realize that we were both intending to be dead sportsmen very good sir i said but i trust i may be allowed to brew the honourable george his tea before leaving i'd hardly like to trust to him alone with it sir yes sir he said so respectfully that it gave me an odd feeling take your time mr ruggles i don't know as i'm in any hurry on my own account it's only on account of her i trust it will be remembered that in reporting this person's speeches i am making an earnest effort to set them down word for word in all their terrific peculiarities i mean to say i would not be held accountable for his phrasing and if i corrected his speech as of course the tendency is our identities might become confused i hope this will be understood when i report him as saying things in ways one doesn't word them i mean to say that it should not be thought that i would say them in this way if it chanced that i were saying the same things in my proper person i fancy this should now be plain very well sir i said if it was me he went on i wouldn't want you a little bit but it's her she's got her mind made up to do the right thing and have us all be somebody and when she makes her mind up he hesitated and studied the ceiling for some seconds believe me he continued mrs effie is some wildcat uh, yes sir some wildcat i repeated believe me bill he said again quaintly addressing me by a name not my own believe me she'd fight a rattlesnake and give it the first two bites again let it be recalled that i put down this extraordinary speech exactly as i heard it i thought to detect in it that grotesque exaggeration with which the americans so distressingly embellish their humour 
I mean to say, it could hardly have been meant in all seriousness. So far as my researches have extended, the rattlesnake is an invariably poisonous reptile. Fancy giving one so downright an advantage as the first two bites, or even one bite, although I believe the thing does not in fact bite at all, but does one down with its forked tongue, of which there is an excellent drawing in my little volume, Inquire Within, One Thousand Useful Facts. Yes, sir, I replied, somewhat at a loss. Quite so, sir. I just thought I'd wise you up beforehand. Thank you, sir, I said, for his intention, beneath the weird jargon, was somehow benevolent. And if you'll be good enough to wait until I have taken tea to the Honorable George. How is the judge this morning? He broke in. Uh, the judge, sir? I was at a loss until he gestured toward the room of the Honorable George. The judge, yes. Ain't he a justice of the peace or something? Uh, but no, sir, not at all, sir. Then what do you call him honorable for, if he ain't a judge or something? Oh, well, sir, it's done, sir, I explained, but I fear he was unable to catch my meaning. For a moment later, the Honorable George, hearing our voices, had thrown a boot smartly against the door. He was addressing him as judge, and thereafter, and thereafter continued to do so, nor did the Honorable George seem to make any moment of being thus miscalled. I served the Ceylon tea, together with biscuits and marmalade, the while our caller chatted nervously. He had, it appeared, procured his own breakfast while on his way to us. I got to have my ham and eggs of a morning, he confided, but she won't let me have anything at that hotel but a continental breakfast, which is nothing but coffee and toast and some of that there sauce you're eating. She says when I'm on the continent, I got to eat a continental breakfast because that's the smart thing to do and not stuff myself like I was on the ranch. But I got that game beat both ways from the jack. I duck out every morning before she's up. I found a place where you can get regular ham and eggs. Mm, regular ham and eggs, murmured the Honorable George. French ham and eggs is a joke. They put a slice of boiled ham in a little dish, slosh a couple of eggs on it, and tuck the dish into the oven a few minutes. Say they won't ever believe that back in Red Gap when I tell it. But I found this here little place where they do it right, account of Americans having made trouble so much over the other way. But mind you, don't let on to her, he warned me suddenly. Certainly not, sir, I said. Trust me to be discreet, sir. All right, then. Maybe we'll get on better than what I thought we would. I was looking for trouble with you, the way she's been talking about what you'd do for me. I trust matters will be pleasant, sir, I replied. I can be pushed just so far, he curiously warned me, and no farther. Not by any man that wears hair. Uh, yes, sir, I said again, wondering what the wearing of hair might mean to this process of pushing him, 
and feeling rather absurdly glad that my own face is smoothly shaven you'll find ruggles fairish enough after you've got used to his ways put in the honourable george all right judge and remember it wasn't my doings said my new employer rising and pulling down to his ears his fearful bowler hat and now we better report to her before she does a hot foot over here you can pack your grip later in the day he added to me pack my grip uh, yes sir i said numbly for i was on the tick of leaving the honourable george helpless in bed in a voice that i fear was broken i spoke of clothes for the day's wear which i had laid out for him the night before he waved a hand bravely at us and sank back into his pillow as my new employer led me forth there had been barely a glance between us to betoken the dreadfulness of the moment at our door i was pleased to note that a taximeter cab awaited us i had acutely dreaded a walk through the streets even of paris with my new employer garbed as he was the blue satin cravat of itself would have been bound to ensure us more attention than one could care for i fear we were both somewhat moody during the short ride each of us seemed to have matters of weight to reflect upon only upon reaching our destination did my companion brighten a bit for a fare of five francs forty centimes he gave the driver a ten-franc piece and waited for no change i always get around them that way he said with an expression of the brightest cunning she used to have the laugh on me because i got so much counterfeit money handed to me now i don't take any change at all uh, yes sir i said quite right sir there's more than one way to skin a cat he added as we ascended to the flouds drawing-room though why his mind should have flown to this brutal sport if it be a sport was quite beyond me at the door he paused and hissed at me remember no matter what she says if you treat me white i'll treat you white and before i could frame any suitable response to this puzzling announcement he had opened the door and pushed me in almost before i could remove my cup seated at the table over coffee and rolls was mrs effie her face brightened as she saw me then froze to disapproval as her glance rested upon him i was to know as cousin egbert i saw her capable mouth set in a straight line of determination you did your very worst didn't you she began but sit down and eat your breakfast he'll soon change that she turned to me now ruggles i hope you understand the situation and i'm sure i can trust you to take no nonsense from him you see plainly what you've got to do i let him dress to suit himself this morning so that you could know the worst at once take a good look at him shoes coat hat that dreadful cravat i call this a right pretty necktie mumbled her victim over a crust of toast she had poured coffee for him you hear that she asked me i bowed sympathetically 
what does he look like she insisted just tell him for his own good please but this i could not do true enough during our short ride he had been reminding me of one of a pair of crosstalk comedians i had once seen in a music hall this of course was not a thing one could say i dare say madam he could be smartened up a bit if i might take him to some good class shop and burn the things he's got on she broke in not this here necktie interrupted cousin egbert rather stubbornly it was give to me by jeff tuttle's littlest girl last christmas and this here prince albert coat what's the matter of it i'd like to know it come right from the one price clothing store at red gap and it's plenty good to go to funerals in and then to a barber shop with him went on mrs effie who had paid no heed to his outburst get him done right for once her relative continued to nibble nervously at a bit of toast i've done something with him myself she said watching him narrowly at first he insisted on having the whole bill of fare for breakfast but i put my foot down and now he's satisfied with the continental breakfast that goes to show he has something in him if we can only bring it out uh, something in him indeed yes madam i assented and cousin egbert turning to me winked heavily i want him to look like someone she resumed and i think you're the man can make him if you're firm with him but you'll have to be firm because he's full of tricks and if he starts any rough stuff just come to me quite so madam i said but i felt i was blushing with shame at hearing one of my own sex so slanged by a woman that sort of thing would never do with us and yet there was something about this woman something weirdly authoritative she showed rather well in the morning light her gray eyes crackling as she talked she was wearing a most elaborate peignoir and of course she should not have worn the diamonds <laughs> it seemed almost too much like the morning hour of a stage favorite but still one felt that when she talked one would do well to listen hereupon cousin egbert startled me once more won't you set up and have something with us mr ruggles he asked me i looked away affecting not to have heard and could feel mrs effie scowling at him he coughed into his cup and sprayed coffee well over himself his intention had been obvious in the main though exactly what he had meant by setting up i couldn't fancy as if i had been a performing poodle the moment's embarrassment was well covered by mrs effie who again renewed her instructions and from an escritoire brought me a sheaf of the pretentiously printed sheets which the french use in place of our bank-notes you will spare no expanse she directed and don't let me see him again until he looks like someone try to have him back here by five some very smart friends of ours are coming for tea i won't drink tea at that outlandish hour for anyone said cousin egbert rather snappishly 
You will at least refuse it like a man of the world, I hope, she replied icily, and he drooped submissive once more. You see, she added to me, quite so, madam, I said, and resolved to be firm and thorough with cousin Egbert. In a way, I was put upon my mettle. I swore to make him look like someone. Moreover, I now saw that his half-veiled threats of rebellion to me had been pure swank. I had in turn but to threaten to report him to this woman, and he would be as clay in my hands. I presently had him tucked into a closed taxicab, half-heartedly muttering expostulations and protests, to which I paid not the least heed. During my strolls I had observed, in what would have been Regent Street at home, rather a good-class shop with an English name, and to this I now proceeded with my charge. I am afraid I rather hustled him across the pavement and into the shop, not knowing what tricks he might be up to, and not until he was well to the back did I attempt to explain myself to the shop-walker who had followed us. To him I then gave details of my charges, escape from a burning hotel the previous night, which accounted for his extraordinary garb of the moment, he having been obliged to accept the loan of garments that neither fitted him nor harmonized with one another. I mean to say, I did not care to have the chap suspect we would don tan boots, a frock coat, and bowler hat, except under the most tremendous compulsion. Cousin Egbert stared at me open-mouthed during this recital, but the shop-walker was only too readily convinced, as indeed who would not have been, and called an intelligent assistant to relieve our distress. With his help I swiftly selected an outfit that was not half bad, for ready-to-wear garments. There was a black morning coat, snug at the waist, moderately broad at the shoulders, closing with two buttons, its skirt sharply cut away from the lower button and reaching to the bend of the knee. The lapels were, of course, soft-rolled, and joined a collar with a triangular notch. It is a coat of immense character when properly worn, and I was delighted to observe in the trying on that Cousin Egbert filled it rather smartly. Moreover, he submitted more meekly than I had hoped. The trousers I selected were of grey cloth, faintly striped, the waistcoat being of the same material as the coat, relieved at the neck opening by an edging of white. With the boots I had rather more trouble, as he refused to wear the patent leathers that I selected, together with the pearl-gray spats, until I grimly requested the telephone assistant to put me through to the hotel, desiring to speak to Mrs. Senator Floud. This brought him around, although muttering, and I had less trouble with shirts, collars, and cravats. I chose a shirt of white piquet, a wing collar with small square-cornered tabs, and a pearl ascot. Then, in a cabinet, I superintended Cousin Egbert's change of raiment. We clashed again in the matter of sock suspenders, which I was astounded to observe he did not possess. He insisted that he had never worn them, garters, he called them, 
and never would if he were shot for it so i decided to be content with what i had already gained by dint of urging and threatening i at length achieved my groundwork and was more than a little pleased with my effect as was the shop assistant after i had tied the pearl ascot and adjusted a quiet tie-pin of my own choosing now i hope you're satisfied growled my charge seizing his bowler hat and edging off by no means i said coldly the hat if you please sir he gave it up rebelliously and i had again to threaten him with the telephone before he would submit to a top hat with a moderate bell and broad brim surveying this in the glass however he became perceptibly reconciled it was plain that he rather fancied it though as yet he wore it consciously and would turn his head slowly and painfully as if his neck were stiffened having chosen the proper gloves i was i repeat more than pleased with this severely simple scheme of black white and grey i felt i had been wise to resist any tendency to colour even to the most delicate of pastel tints my last selection was a smartish malacca stick the ideal stick for town wear which i thrust into the defenceless hands of my client and now sir i said firmly it is but a step to a barber's stop where english is spoken and ruefully he accompanied me i dare say that by that time he had discovered that i was not to be trifled with for during his hour in the barber's chair he did not once rebel openly only at times he would roll his eyes to mine in dumb appeal there was in them something of the utter confiding helplessness i had noticed in the eyes of an old setter at shane's Watton, when i had been called upon to assist the undergardener in chloroforming him i mean to say the dog had jolly well known something terrible was being done to him yet his eyes seemed to say he knew it must be all for the best and that he trusted us it was this look i caught as i gave directions about the trimming of the hair and especially when i directed that something radical should be done to the long greyish moustache that fell to either side of his chin in the form of a horseshoe i myself was puzzled by this difficulty but the barber solved it rather neatly i thought after a whispered consultation with me he snipped a bit off each end and then stoutly waxed the whole affair until the ends stood stiffly out with distinct military implications i shall never forget and indeed i was not a little touched by the look of quivering anguish in the eyes of my client when he first beheld this novel effect and yet when we were once more in the street i could not but admit that the change was worth all that it had cost him in suffering strangely he now looked like some one especially after i had persuaded him to a carnation for his buttonhole i cannot say that his carriage was all that it should have been and he was still conscious of his smart attire but i nevertheless felt a distinct thrill of pride in my own work and was eager to reveal him to mrs effie in his new guise but first he would have luncheon dinner as he called it 
and i was not averse to this for i had put in a long and trying morning i went with him to the little restaurant where americans had made so much trouble about ham and eggs and there he insisted that i should join him in chops and potatoes and ale i thought it only proper then to point out to him that there was certain differences in our walks of life which should be more or less denoted by his manner of addressing me among other things he should not address me as mr ruggles nor was it customary for a valet to eat at the same table with his master he seemed much interested in these distinctions and thereupon addressed me as colonel which was of course quite absurd but this i could not make him see thereafter i may say that he called me impartially either colonel or bill it was a situation that i had never before been obliged to meet and i found it trying in the extreme he was a chap who seemed ready to pal up with any one and i could not but recall the strange assertion i had so often heard that in america one never knows who is one's superior fancy that it would never do with us i could only determine to be on my guard our luncheon done he consented to accompany me to the hotel of the honourable george whence i wished to remove my belongings i should have preferred to go alone but i was too fearful of what he might do to himself or his clothes in my absence we found the honourable george still in bed as i had feared he had it seemed been unable to discover his collar studs which though i had placed them in a fresh shirt for him he had carelessly covered with a blanket begging cousin egbert to be seated in my room i did a few of the more obvious things required by my late master you'd leave me here like a rat in a trap he said reproachfully which i thought almost quite a little unjust i mean to say it had all been his own doing he having lost me in the game of drawing poker so why should he row me about it now i silently laid out the shirt once more you might have told me where i'm to find my brown tweeds and the body linen again he was addressing me as if i had voluntarily left him without notice but i observed that he was still mildly speckled from the night before so i handed him the fruit lozenges and went to pack my own box cousin egbert i found sitting as i had left him on the edge of a chair carefully holding his hat stick and gloves and staring into the wall he had promised me faithfully not to fumble with his cravat and evidently he had not once stirred i packed my box swiftly my grip as he called it and we were presently off once more without another sight of the honourable george who was to join us at tea i could hear him moving about using rather ultra-frightful language but i lacked heart for further speech with him at the moment an hour later in the flowered drawing-room i had the supreme satisfaction of displaying to mrs effie the happy changes i had been able to effect in my charge posing him i knocked at the door of her chamber 
she came at once and drew a long breath as she surveyed him from varnished boots spats and coat to top hat which he still wore he leaned rather well on his stick the hand to his hip the elbow out while the other hand lightly held his gloves a moment she looked then gave a low cry of wonder and delight so that i felt repaid for my trouble indeed as she faced me to thank me i could see that her eyes were dimmed wonderful she exclaimed now he looks like someone and i distinctly perceived that only just in time did she repress an impulse to grasp me by the hand under the circumstances i am not sure that i wouldn't have overlooked the lapse had she yielded to it wonderful she said again hereupon cousin egbert much embarrassed leaned his stick against the wall the stick fell and in reaching down for it his hat fell and in reaching for that he dropped his gloves but i soon restored him to order and he was safely seated where he might be studied in further detail especially as to his moustaches which i had considered rather the supreme touch he looks exactly like some well-known clubman exclaimed mrs effie her relative growled as if he were quite ready to savage her like a man about town she murmured who would have thought he had it in him until you brought it out i knew then that we two should understand each other the slight tension was here relieved by two of the hotel servants who brought tea things at a nod from mrs effie i directed the laying out of these at that moment came the other floud he of the eyebrows and a cousin cub called elmer who i understood studied art i became aware that they were both suddenly engaged and silenced by the sight of cousin egbert i caught their amazed stares and then terrifically they broke into gales of laughter the cub threw himself on a couch waving his feet in the air and holding his middle as if he'd suffered a sudden acute dyspepsia while the elder threw his head back and shrieked hysterically cousin egbert merely glared at them and endeavouring to stroke his moustache succeeded in unwaxing one side of it so that it once more hung limply down his chin whereat they renewed their boorishness the elder flout was now quite dangerously purple and the cub on the couch was shrieking no matter how dark the clouds remember she is still your stepmother all words to some such silly effect as that how it might have ended i hardly dare conjecture perhaps cousin egbert would presently have roughed them but a knock sounded and it became my duty to open our door upon other guests women mostly americans in paris that sort of thing i served the tea amid their babble the honourable george was shown up a bit later having done to himself quite all i thought he might in the matter of dress 
in spite of serious discrepancies in his attire however i saw that mrs effie meant to lionize him tremendously with vast ceremony he was presented to her guests the honourable george augustus vane basingwell brother of his lordship the earl of brinstead the women fluttered about him rather though he behaved moodily and at the first opportunity fell to the tea and cakes quite wholeheartedly in spite of my aversion to the american wilderness i felt a bit of professional pride in reflecting that my first day in this new service was about to end so auspiciously yet even in that moment being as yet unfamiliar with the room's lesser furniture i stumbled slightly against a hassock hid from me by the tray i carried a cup of tea was lost though my recovery was quick too late i observed that the hitherto self-effacing cousin egbert was in range of my clumsiness there goes tea all over my new pants he said in a high pained voice sorry indeed sir said i a ready napkin in hand let me dry it sir yes sir i fancy quite so sir said he i most truly would have liked to shake him smartly for this i saw that my work was cut out for me among these americans from whom at their best one expects so little End of chapter 2